0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Policing, Incarceration and Reform. I'm your host, Deniz Yonucu from Newcastle University. Today, I'm speaking with Zoha Wasim on her excellent New Book, Insecure Guardians, Enforcement, Encounters and Everyday Policing in Postcolonial Karachi. Zoha, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Denise. Thank you so much for having me here.
1: So what made you write this book? Uh, So that's a great question. Um, So as you know, uh, the the book is basically coming out of my PhD research, uh, which began in 2013-2014. Um, at that time, I think my interests were more sort of uh, you know on on exploring and investigating certain patterns of uh, criminality and terrorism and this nexus between uh, crime and terrorism and state response uh, to security threats uh, in Pakistan, in urban Pakistan, Karachi specifically, um, more so in the aftermath of 911. Um, but then I think as I uh, as I began exploring further, I realized that there was this was a very uh, populated landscape, and there was there were a lot of scholars already working on sort of you know uh, on counterterrorism, on uh, on other milit- like on other um, aspects of insecurity in Pakistan, uh, on political violence, religion, the military, other institutions involved uh, in. Uh, you know, sort of perpetrating or responding to violence in Pakistan. But um, there was really a lack of research, uh, a lack of scholarship, a gap in the field, so to say, on what the law enforcement agencies were doing. Uh, what, what were the police officers doing? What was their role um, in these various forms of violence uh, in, in places like Karachi and other cities of Pakistan? Um, so there was this particular gap in the field. Then, uh, you know, as I mentioned in the book as well, my father is a retired police officer. So he had served in the police prior to my to me sort of joining academia. Um, so there was so I had sort of grown up seeing the institution a little bit, you know, at home through his through his job and hearing about it uh, and, and all of that. Um, so it was also like a kind of a, there was a personal connection, like a familial connection with the police as well. So there was that privilege of having access to an institution that is otherwise sort of, you know, closed off. The <laughs> to the public um, and so I had that kind of that access um, and I talk about a lot about my positionality and I can discuss that later on in the in, in this conversation as well but at that time my sort of mentors my supervisors did encourage they said that you know there's um, uh, and as one colleague of mine recently put it as you know it's called mobilizing one's access um, is that if you have the access to something that other people are not otherwise uh, accept, that, that is an institution specifically that is not otherwise accessible and you want to sort of create Critically explore what they're doing and critically analyze what they're doing, then, you know, you, it's, it's good to kind of operationalize that and mobilize that a little bit. And that's something that my supervisors and mentors encouraged as well. Uh, and it's something that my parents and family supported as well. Um, so it was uh, so that's sort of the, that was the beginning of it. Um, and then I as I started sort of um, exploring further, um, I realized that, you know, just researching on the police is just never just researching on the police, right, or, or never Never just researching on what's happening in the institution, but it's also a great way of understanding how the state functions, um, how the state perpetrates its violence, how the state enforces control, uh, enforces, reconstitutes, uh, you know, recreates specific kinds of orders, um, how politics is done, how cities are run, how societies are governed. So the institution itself gives you a really good perspective um, into things uh, such as you know urban politics um, and into sort of the way power is arranged in a society in a particular point of time, in the way urban insecurities are generated. So, I mean, I started off by looking at one institution, but I think it really tells the story of much uh, of bigger trends. Uh, It tells the story of the city. It tells the story of urban Pakistan. uh, It tells the story of urban insecurities in Pakistan. Um, So... I think it's uh, it's one of those it's one of those uh, case studies that can provide insights uh, into a, into things far beyond just the institution of the police, um, and it is also a story that and also a book that I feel like as I started sort of researching further and further, it's also an institution that gives you insight into how the past and present are connected, uh, into how sort of our history and our sort of contemporary forms of violence, governance, governmentality is connected. Um, and that's something, uh, you know, that's something that I develop in the book, like how can we connect a colonial past to a post-colonial present, really. Um, so that's, that's uh, you know, how, how the interest was generated by sort of identifying this gap in the field, by mobilizing one's access, and then by realizing that this is a very important story to be telling, um, which people don't pay enough attention to.
0: Thanks, Doha, for your comprehensive answer. Yes, I think the book brilliantly shows the relations between society, state, and police, and you mobilized your privilege extremely well, actually. So you open your book with the story of the tragic killing of Nakibullah Mesudi and the success story of the high rank police officer, of a high-ranked police officer, Ahmed Khan. How do these figure What do these figures reveal about the policing in today's Pakistan?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it was some. It was actually a, a very tragic incident that took place towards the end of my PhD. Um, so when I was finishing up um, the first, like you know, let's say draft uh, of the PhD, um, that's when the incident kind of took place, and it. Created a lot of conversation around police and policing in Pakistan, uh, and a lot of conversation around extrajudicial violence, uh, what we in South Asia, you know, refer to as police encounter killings. So I do talk a lot about sort of um, this this officer Ravanwar, in the book. But I think he sort of represents much more than just one individual officer. He represents um, he sort of he he personifies how the state patronizes specific kinds of violent actors, uh, what some people call dirty workers, people who, who are sort of able to be patronized by the state and perform uh, dirty work in response to state demand. So he's although I sort of you know um, um, discuss his case quite a bit um, and use use that as an example, but really it tells it. Tells the a bigger story, right, of of how the state uses um, the police for enforcing particular kinds of orders, for addressing specific kinds of security threats um, that are framed in particular ways. So basically, Rao Anwar or, uh, Rao, or Anwar Ahmed Khan um, He basically joined the police uh, in the 90s uh, and he's sort of groomed and patronized by multiple political stakeholders, so civilian governments as well as the military. Um, And he's one of those officers, among many, who were sort of patronized and groomed for carrying out specific tasks on the the behest of the state, on the request of the state, right? And often that required operating outside of the law or taking the law into one's hand, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, acting beyond the books, off the record, in very informal in very extrajudicial extra legal ways in some cases um, so the the practice of encounter killings which is basically like extrajudicial violence or sort of you know in, in more sort of in simpler terms it's the practice of killing people already in custody uh, it's when police officials carry out extrajudicial killings of those who are already in custody and then are and then present those killings as um, as shootouts uh, like you know as like as crossfire like as people killed in crossfire but really the the people are already in police custody. And then I sort of eliminated, quote, unquote, because that's that's, you know, that's the way that a security threat has to be addressed. So Anwar Ahmed Khan is a product of that. Uh, Anwar is a product of that, of the state tolerance and demand for extrajudicial violence on the part of, uh, you know, our political elite um, and, the, and the regime at large. Um, and he's one of those officers who's then financially and professionally rewarded uh, over, over, over many years for um, acting beyond the law and outside of the law. Nakibula Masood is somebody, was, was a young Pashtun man who was basically, who shows what's wrong with these sorts of policies, right, who shows, what, the case shows what can go wrong and how dangerous it can be when the state patronizes specific officers for carrying out their, its dirty work, right. Nakibullah Masood was a young Pashtun man who was taken into police custody along with a few others, three or four other people, and then he was killed in January 2018 with those four, uh, with those with those people with that group of people, and he was presented as somebody belonging to the Pakistani Taliban or a militant group, right? So he was posed as somebody who was also a militant and a threat to the state, and. Over time, it was revealed um, when the family took the case to the court and it took to the media and social media and created a huge uproar and led to a national movement, protest movement in Pakistan. It was revealed eventually that the Kibula Masood was not uh, had nothing to do, was not affiliated with any militant group, was in fact just a young Pashtun man trying to make a living in the city of Karachi um, and was an aspiring model. Uh, and, uh, and he was far from sort of any connection as, as far as we know to any militant group um, and that led to a, a major sort of national uproar and it's, it's essentially the, his, his killing shows um, you know all that is wrong with, with relying upon um, police violence relying upon extrajudicial violence um, and what can, what can potentially go wrong and, um, but I would say even then even though I talk a lot about this case and even though like there's a lot of uproar that was generated um, I would say that the practice of encounter killings or using extrajudicial violence to address a range of threats has not disseminated, has not stopped, has not been discontinued uh, in Pakistan. There is a still a reliance upon uh, you know, breeding and grooming and training specific officers for acting outside of the law even though we have seen so much public resistance and protest movements against and agitation against these sorts of policies, but the state has not abandoned these sorts of practices and the police have not abandoned these sorts of practices because there is still an appetite within the state for these sorts of officers and these sorts of practices.
0: That's really (laughs) sad to hear. Um, So your book is on post-colonial policing, how do you define postcolonial policing, Soha? So
1: that's a that's a really good question, uh, and it's something that I feel like I'm, I'm I keep developing in my work, um, and I and I think I I, I sort of um, this uh, this book is you know is a starting point for developing some of these these ideas and conversations around. Uh, post-colonial policing and taking a more critical perspective on how um, these post-colonial perspectives might apply in places like South Asia. So, one of the key questions that the book asks is that: Is there a unique way of understanding um, the culture or cultures of policing in certain jurisdictions that are characterized by their colonial past as well as their colonial present? So, I think that in order, you know, at any time when we try to understand uh, why particular state institutions at a particular point of time, what are they doing? Um, what, what? How are they? How are state institutions operating? How are public officials operating? It's really important to kind of look back before we, we, you know, to try to understand the present. It's good to look back, and it's sort of what I try to do as well. I try to connect the past with the present, um, and see if there are any continuities that we can chart. Right? Are there any sort of, um, are there any trends and patterns that were developed or, or that can be traced back? Um, to to the creation of those so-called modern and professionalized police forces uh, in South Asia, you know, are there any continuities that we can see, and are there any changes that we can observe over a period of time? Um, so this this framework uh, of post-colonial policing, or what I call the post-colonial condition of policing, is very much about sort of connecting the past with the present. Uh, is very much about tracing. Uh, Contemporary policing back to historical legacies to imperial governance um, and to see how uh, successive governments in places like Pakistan have essentially retained and very consciously and in a very decisive manner retained certain traits of colonial policing in in in, in sort of po- in their post-colonial governance right um, and there are a few continuities uh, and a few general. Uh, very broad continuities that my book touches upon and talks about. Um, One is the kind of persistence of regime insecurity, because as we know, uh, colonial regimes, you know, under the British Empire, specifically in places like India, at at, at that time, sort of British India, um, they were very sort of, you know, they were quite uh, insecure regimes to begin with. Um, Their power power was routinely contested, legitimacy, legitimacy was routinely contested. There was a lack of public trust in state institutions, especially the police, which was heavily distrusted. Um, So there was a lot, you know, in the face of resistance to their authority, those regimes were quite uh, insecure in their own ways. And I think that's something that is one of the traits you find um, in Pakistan as well in successive governments that have, you know, because of various factors, because of Um, You know, uh, local resistance, domestic insurgencies, um, uh, secessionist movements, uh, ethno-political violence. There have been multiple forms of resistance to the post-colonial states authority in Pakistan as a result of that you know or, or you know in some, in in, a, in in cases of course like pakistan also military coups and dictatorships and military interventions um, so as a result of that the state has re, you know remained very um very insecure its legitimacy has always remained very contested so that's one of the patterns you see continuing throughout and as a result of which you see a heavy reliance upon this idea of national security national interest and the idea that everything must be every every kind of resistance to put you know the state's authority must be framed as a security threat. When that happens, when every kind of political issue, social issue, economic issue becomes an emergency, becomes framed as a security threat or a national security issue, then the security institutions, such as the police, are also going to internalize that. They're going to see every kind of problem in society, every political issue as a national security issue. And that's what then becomes ingrained uh, and embedded within policing um, ethos and policing philosophies as well. that's another kind of continuation we see is that the the sort of the creation of the police was very much to maintain regime security and protect, you know, particular order that would, that would um, serve the regime. We see that continuing till date. So there's no desire on the part of the state to kind of do away with having policing institutions that are very loyal to the regime, that that above and beyond serve the regime, serve the national interest, whatever that might be, right? So the interest of the community or the interest of the public and, and the, you know, society, is is very secondary if that right? It it, it doesn't take a priority because very much the, the the sort of purpose of the states remains a very political pur- purpose of the police remains a very political purpose, which is to maintain public order in service of the regime and its elites. So there's another kind of a continuity that we see when I talk about sort of uh, post-colonial policing. Um, There are other traits as well in terms of the institutional design of the police, the way the rank and file are differentiated from the elite cadre, which I discuss at length in the book, and how that, you know, hierarchical design retains a particular culture of policing. Also, we can talk about that a little bit more. Um, Also, which is, you know, it's one of the key traits of post-colonial policing, which I talk about. Um, The other is, you know, retention of uh, militarism in policing. We know that Colonial policing bodies were very militarized institutions to begin with. Um, that is something that has been uh, that has either you know you know it, it's if it, it's been retained if not exacerbated in post-colonial Pakistan. Um, and the, the the last thing, the last kind of trend or trait that I talk about is the presence of informality in police work, uh, which is a very broad concept, and I I do bring in a lot of uh, you know a lot of practices and behaviors and procedures into it um, to talk about how the police were sort of always meant to rely outside of the book, how there was always state and elite tolerance for the police acting outside of the law above and beyond. Um, And I think that's something that the state and regime and the elites continue to rely upon the ability of the police to act beyond the law in very informal ways. So those are some of the traits we see continuing um, in post-colonial policing, I think.
0: Yeah. And you argue that procedural informality is an integral part of postcolonial policing and you just defined it, I guess, right? Yeah, a little what bit. Mean? I mean, just to expand upon that, I mean, two of the main
1: the sort of um, themes that I'm talking about or, or main traits that I'm talking about, one is, is police militarization, uh, which has been discussed quite a bit in contemporary scholarship and literature. Um, the other that I'm sort of trying to develop in, in, in this book and in subsequent work is this idea of informality. And to kind of, you know, develop that informality in police work and formality in, in everyday policing. And to develop that, um, I do draw upon different disciplines, uh, different, you know, scholarship from urban studies, uh, politics, et cetera, which basically has been arguing for some time now uh, that even within formal mechanisms, formal state structures, formal mechanisms of governance, um, there, is, there, is al- there has always been room for mobilizing informality. Now, whether that means working with you know, people and actors within the informal economy, whether that means um, you know, benefiting from formal. Of informal governance, or whether it means deploying certain forms of informal informal behaviors and practices, um, you know, by both street level bureaucrats, but also by higher higher ranking public and bureauc- bureauc- uh, public officials and bureaucrats and police officers. Um, so in that way, like there are many ways in which informality or you know informal behaviors and practices remain remains integral. To everyday police work, police performance. Um, It's both demanded by the state, it's both, uh, it's like, you know, it can be seen as a survival strategy on some parts by the police officers. Um, I talked a little bit about the idea that um there is a there is a structural division in the police uh, with the with the lower ranking officers who, who make up like 90 95% of the force in some cases the constabulary um they are on on the one end and the other end is a, is a very small group of minority officers who are the elite officers right and it is really the constabulary the major the more the rank and file which is then you know overburdened and expected to deliver on a range of policies on a range of you know uh, prac- uh, on a range of policies on a range of demands of the elite and the state, um with very little resources, with very little you know um, uh, you know provisions, with very little security for themselves, with very little. Um, how would I say? It? You know, any with no guarantees of their own own personal safety or their professional security or their job security. There's no guarantees of that, but yet they're demanded to implement state policies and security policies in very, very vulnerable and politically uncertain environments. So when that happens, it's almost like there is an expectation that that they will operate outside of the law. They will operate in informal ways, and whether if that means you know engaging in corruption, abusing discretion, acting in vigilante ways, um, or in otherwise mobil- mobilizing informality, being corrupt, you know, being um, creative, using informal means, using, you know, in- innovative techniques, etc. They will use that, and that's okay. So it's understood that the police will, it's understood and expected by the elites and non-elite that the police will operate in a in. In varied forms, in in a in varied like informal ways, if that makes sense, right? Um, and on their part, on the police's part, it then becomes a survival strategy. It it becomes a strategy that they deploy in their in in, in a lot of ways. It you know in the way that they court patronage, in the way that they uh, me, make ends meet. So on the lower level, on the level of the police stations, the idea of petty corruption is very normalized, right? The idea that we don't have enough resources to file Complaints. We don't have enough resources to make arrests, so we'll just sort of, you know, ask the, pe- uh, you know, ask people for a little bit of money on the side, or we'll sort of, you know, ask, or, you know, bribe people to sort of pay our bosses, uh, you know. So there's various ways that financial corruption can work, and it's not always greed. And that's something I talk about in the book as well. That sometimes it's basic survival. It's about making basic ends meet on the part of sometimes very poorly salaried, poorly paid police officers, um, which which then obviously leads to things like, you know. Yeah. You know. Uh, predatory policing practices, police extortion, and it can be a nuisance for the public. But for some, for some, in the case, in the case of some rank and file officers, it becomes a routine survival strategy. Now, obviously, that's one end of it. The other end can be, you know, acting like judge, jury, and exec, ex, executioner. If you know, if you, if you have, if you make room for certain kinds of small-scale informal policing practices that may not have large-scale repercussions, you will eventually create room for the other end of the spectrum as well, in which vigilante violence on the part of the police or police vigilantism or extrajudicial violence, extrajudicial practices, you know, extreme forms of, you know, uh, uh, financial corruption also become possible. So there is a room for a range of practices and behaviors that I I, I think informality in police work can, uh, can, can entail, if that makes sense. But
0: yeah, that definitely makes sense. And you argue that militarized policing and informal policing practices are actually characteristics of what you call as policing in post-colonial contexts.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's a bit of a paradox, right? Like on the one hand, you are trying to empower the police by giving them more weapons, giving them more gear, making sure that their military might is 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 strong. You know that they can respond swiftly to threats, they can act in extrajudicial ways, they can carry out violence, they can use excessive force when when needed, and they will be protected for using excessive force through various laws and legislations and courts and by politicians, etc. They'll be protected for those those very military. Uh, practices and sometimes there is zero tolerance approaches right but on the other hand, you're also kind of keeping them weak and disempowered by making sure that their professional insecurities are not addressed, their job insecurities are not addressed, that they are constantly victims of violence themselves. So it's a way, it's it's something that Beatrice we also talks about in her work, the idea of sort of simultaneously empowered and disempowered disempowered police forces, right? Like there's, there, there is this paradox that you sort of, you give them a lot of arms, but you make sure that their personal and professional vulnerabilities are not addressed. And that, because, that can potentially become the recipe for a disaster, because sort of thrusting weapons in the arms of insecure rank and file officers or insecure police officers, even soldiers, thrusting weapons in their arms, framing everything as a security threat, as a national security, in, you know, issue, as some, as everything becoming a national interest issue, you know, it can create a recipe for a disaster. It can lead to potentially things going wrong, which is exactly what happened in the Kibola Masood's case. You had you had created a culture in which the police were hyper-empowered, hyper-militarized, but they were also then insecure. They were quoting patronage. They were quoting financial rewards, uh, you know, uh, informal financial rewards. Um, they were acting outside of the law. There was an appetite for vigilante behavior on the part of the police. And then that results, ki- the killing of innocent civilians like, like Nakee Masood. So that kind of hyper-empowerment and their disempowerment kind of works together to create a particular culture of policing. Hyper-empowerment kind of talking about militarization of policing and their disempowerment Connecting to the idea of why they need to resort to informal policing practices and behaviors. And those two elements then work together to sustain a particular kind of culture of policing in post-colonial societies.
0: That's that's really interesting. And you say that police reform if, uh, reforms also do not work, not only in Pakistan, but in the global south in general. And why is that?
1: So that's a that's a very that's a tough question as well. I mean, some would say reforms don't work anywhere, um, which, is, which is also, very, you know, it's a valid point that even in Western societies, you know, how many how many examples do we have, uh, you know, of reforms working? I mean, you the United Kingdom is a is a great example right now of people questioning, you know, did reforms ever work, um, you know, given the given the ongoing discussions of institutional sexism and racism and the police in Britain. Um, so people are really questioning the kind of, you know, how much do reforms really work? Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's an interesting question because I do grapple with it because it's not like reform efforts have not been initiated in Pakistan. They have been initiated. Multiple commissions have been formed. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of aid and funding has gone into it. A lot of money has been poured into uh, reform efforts uh, and sort of change processes and change programs and packages and all of that, right? Um, but the, so there are certain things that change, interestingly, but there are certain things that do remain, This, you know, that certain things that remain continuous and continuing um, and constant. Um, so in the, in you know, what changes, if we think about what changes, it's interesting, because it's not that, I mean, obviously, with time, police forces do evolve in certain ways, right? What we see in terms of the evolution and changes in the police, particularly so in the aftermath, I would say of, you know, 9-11, but even before that, um, is, is how they changed uh, in terms of the kind of, uh, cosmetic changes, if we think about it, like more superficial changes, facelifts, cosmetic changes, right? Changes in police stations, changes in their uniforms, changes in their equipment, vehicles. So they go from, you know, having simpler weapons to more sophisticated armor and weapons, right? They go from having um, regular police vehicles to having armored personnel carriers and um, and bulletproof jackets and bulletproof vehicles and all of that. So those things are provided, right? And a lot of training also uh, on the part of donors and you know international and international donors was also provided, especially on counterinsurgency, on counterterrorism, on surveillance, on intelligence collection, on on prosecuting terrorists, on making cases against terrorists, etc. Right. So there are those things that happen, and often even this idea uh, that is packaged as community policing is very much connected to this counterinsurgency form of policing. Right. Like you both sort of talk about hearts and minds, uh, and you see that as 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 and when you know, the the role of the police in counterinsurgency becomes very central and critical. We start talking more and more about community policing because the two are going kind of hand in hand, you know, and there's a lot of work on this and a lot of discussion and scholarship on this as well. Um, so we see that those things do come along, those packages and those programs do come along with, with you know, with uh, encouraging the police to focus on counterterrorism, encouraging them to focus on counterinsurgency, and encouraging their their more sort of military, encouraging the uh, more, you know further embeddedness of militarism in policing. So you see that that does change, that doesn't evolve. What doesn't change are these structural dynamics, are these very sort of deeper institutional dynamics, right? What doesn't change are the class-based divisions in the police, class-based discrimination that takes place against the rank and file, which encourages them to act in very informal and militarized ways. What doesn't change is the idea that militarism remains embedded in policing, right? All the problems continue. You you may make the police more cosmetically sophisticated and make them look better and look professionalized. But the idea that they're ultimately serving national interest, political interest, addressing national security threats, that remains ingrained, right? So you're giving them a better facelift. But the idea of militarism and militarization of policing that. And dissipate. It it remains very much central to policing and police work. And then lastly, the idea, you know, the idea that uh, the police serve a political purpose, the politicization of policing remains very, very, it remains untouched. And this is something that I feel like, you know, donors and funders and and reformers have talked about, like, how do you depoliticize the police? But I've always been quite skeptical of that, because historically, you know, since you know, since since the since imp, the, you know the imp, imperial rule, the police have served as you know a, a strategically political purpose. Now, whether that's the you know serving the purpose of civilian regimes or military regimes, either way, they have served regime interests and 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 and, and served in um sort of in uh for the betterment of of regime security and and political interests and the political elite that remains unchanged. So those those institutional factors, structural factors, which compromise, which breed a certain kind of police force that remains there. Uh, militarism remains heavily embedded in policing and the, uh, the police remain a very politicized and a very politically powerful entity. And I think those things do not get touched in reform. So when we think about critical reforms or reforms that can you know, really reshape the culture of policing, we're not seeing that.
0: Yeah, that's a great answer. And in your book also, you show the structural forces that shape the police culture uh, very well. And you also, um, I mean, as you mentioned, you talk about how police is uh, deeply militarized, but you also mentioned the tensions between the military and the police.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great area. I think that's, um, that's something that you know I would like to work on more, um, because again, I think in places like uh, places like Pakistan, um, countries like Pakistan that have seen multiple military dictatorships and periods of military rule and at least three military coups, um, for all intents and purposes, I mean, even in other places, policing can be a very pluralized landscape. You can have public policing providers, you can have private policing providers. In the, in the cases like Pakistan, Nigeria and others, you also have the military thrown into the mix as another sort of as, as one of the entities that is also involved in domestic law enforcement and internal security provision etc right so in the case of Pakistan which is a hybrid regime the army has long been a very key political actor a key political stakeholder over many decades we have seen um, I mean and, and this is not to sort of negate the fact that or just not to discount the fact that as we know in South Asia and other former colonies the idea of civilian policing and military policing they were not that, that distinction was never really like very clear to begin with. There were always like overlaps between civilian policing and military policing and the civilian civilian police institution and the military. There were always overlaps and interconnect and interconnectedness in there in, in those two institutions, right? Um in Pakistan we have seen evolutions, but that in that kind of blurred line between um civilian policing and the military, or the civilian police and the military remains, right? And there are multiple ways in Pakistan that we see that happening, that kind of overlap between civilian so-called civilian police and the military, we see that overlap quite a bit. Um, it, to give you some, to give you some sort of more empirical kind of, you know, um, examples, um, we've seen in the case of Pakistan, the army influencing the postings and transfers of civilian police officers. Right? We have seen them patronizing certain preferred police officers. We have seen them. Uh, we have seen them. You know, we have seen army officers and military officers. From armed forces taking early retirement to join the police, um, we've we've had quota systems for army officers within civilian police. So there's 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 that kind of institutional overlap happening. Then we also have um, a more sort of a we have a security landscape that is further high, you know, further uh, you know becoming hybrid by the way the military intervenes in sort of the uh, drafting of national security policies or the uh, the, you know, or the com- or taking command of sec- internal security operations. So we have like commissions and committees that are created in which both civilian stakeholders and military stakeholders sit to oversee security operations. And often the military then dictates, or the military establishment, as we call them, and dictates what police officials should be doing and what civilian police departments should be doing in service of the regime right so you have them not only penetrating um, civilian police institutions you also have them taking in some cases in some extreme you know cases in these commissions and committees taking a command over what the police should be doing um even though if even it even though it, you might have a civilian government and you may have like politicians sort of you know in place but the military can deeply influence how the, the police carries out it's more more so it's it counterinsurgency and counterterrorism operations, they can they can influence that quite a bit. And then thirdly, um, because as I mentioned, it's a pluralized policing landscape, you also have Paramilitary forces connected to the army who are also co-policing, who are sort of policing the same jurisdiction as the police does, and this is something I talk about in my book as well, um, is that you have a, a landscape of security, public security, a landscape of policing in which you've got the Karachi police, which is a civilian for for you know as in terms of its proper definition, it's a civilian police force, and then you've got. The Sindh Rangers, which is the paramilitary force, and both of them for the past 30 odd years have been operating in a shared jurisdiction with very overlapping policing responsibilities. So they, you know, they both can you know they both can carry out arrests, they both can, you know, detain suspects, they will, you know, operate against everything from street criminals to terrorists to political actors, etc. So you've seen a very overlapping field between sort of the you know overlapping duties, policing responsibilities between the paramilitary force that reports to the army and the Karachi police, which reports to the civilian government. What that does then is that when you have these, you know, these shared jurisdictions of policing, a very pluralized policing landscape, it can create you know, first it can obviously create pathways for collaboration, but then it can also create you know a, a lot of competition because the military has traditionally been seen, the army has traditionally been seen as the most superior actor, right? As a more well-established, it has always had I mean, in the past has had more legitimacy than the police. So the police kind of keep trying to learn from them and mirror what they're doing and become more like this, the older brother, right? Which I which I talk about in the book, and so so what that does is that it further starts you know embedding this idea of I mean, the of police militarization. It further starts to make, you know, the police want the same weapons as the armed forces, the same legitimacy as the armed forces, the same credibility as the army, and operate like the army. And then when the police gets more criticized than the army, then the police is like, no, we want to become less transparent because we don't want to be criticized by the public as the way the army does not get criticized or does not used to get criticized by the public. So you have them kind of always trying to mirror you know, then that's what it does like it starts, the army starts influencing when they're in that landscape of in that public landscape uh, of public provision of policing, when they're involved in that, they will keep influencing what the law and what other law enforcement agencies do, um, and so it creates a tension. But it also further risks uh, making the police more and more like, or, you know, uh, like a like a, a more militarized entity. So that's one of the risks of
0: that. That's very interesting, very interesting. And you talk a lot about your uh, own positionality and research ethics in the book, and you make a distinction between the sociology of the police and the sociology for the police, and you say that what you do is not the sociology for the police. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, that's a great
1: question, right? And I think... um... I think that's where you know often like sociologists and criminologists are also like you know fighting with each other about like who 's doing what kind of research right um and i think it's a it's a great debate and i think um so there's there's i mean to put it very simply, i guess sociology for the police would look for would look at things like you know crime and deviancy and would look at patterns of criminality would look at um, you know uh, forms of violence and essentially carry out sociological research uh, on certain kind of you know so-called societal ills they would you know carry out research on like crime and deviancy in research that will eventually benefit the police right research that can inform the police that can um and you know this is more sort of within uh, it, it wouldn't be within critical scholarship it would be more in more sort of you know traditional scholarship traditional uh, criminology especially um, they would create they would carry out like like you know, um, this like sociological research on, for example, gangs or organized crimes or domestic violence, etc., and that would then sort of serve some interests for the police. That would either better inform the police about these issues or better sort of, you know, better you know, or sort of inform reform packages for the police, etc. So that would be broadly, very simply, in uh, very plain words, what sociology the police would look like, right? Something that would eventually aid law enforcement agencies. Sociology of the police would go deeper into the institution of the police itself. It would look at, and this is what I think what my book is trying to do, it would look at what's happening within the police. What are the police officers doing? Why are they doing that? Under what sort of political environments are they operating? Under what kind of social and economic constraints are they operating? How are their relationships among each other? How are their relationships with other institutions? Um, What sort of biases do we see in the police? What sort of, you know... um Ethnic divisions, race, racial divisions, do we see in the police? Um, so that kind of social sociology of the police would very much be like an investigation into police culture itself. What's wrong with it, right? Like very much about like we hear we hear these very global conversations around institutional racism, uh, sexism in the police. Uh, a lot of work on police culture, um, authoritarian forms of policing practices, where they emerge from, and how are they justified, right? That would all be kind of work that would broadly fall. Uh, Within, within this category of sociology of the police. And there's a third category as well. I won't go into too much of it, but it's called sociology of policing, which would then look at sort of the different actors involved in Providing policing and police work, so not just the police, but different law enforcement agencies, dif- like including the military, private security companies, other private actors, vigilante groups. the so multiple actors, multiple institutions involved in policing. How they connect to each other, how they maintain, break, or sustain certain kinds of social political orders. That would be sociology of policing when you're looking at multiple multiple um, sort of actors in a very pluralized policing and security landscape. That's also another kind of sociology. So, yeah.
0: That's great. And you conducted ethnographic research among the police. Could you tell us a little bit about your ethnographic research? Sure.
1: So as I said, I mean, I, I had, um, uh, you know, there was there was an initial kind of access that I was given uh, by virtue of being the daughter of a of a former police officer, a retired police officer. So he wasn't, my father was not serving at the time that the research started. Um, but having a like having a father who was, um, you know, in the in the police uh, prior to my research did help. It, it opened certain doors for me, no doubt. I've been quite open about that. Um, but it did create other challenges, no doubt, because I mean, people thought I was, you know, sometimes that would that I would rat them out. That I would write officers to you know other officers that I would um that I'm just somebody who's here I wasn't often I wasn't taken seriously because I'm a woman as well and then you know because I'm just here because of my privilege so there was all there was a lot of skepticism around me no doubt there was a lot of sexism that was directed at me no doubt um but even then I managed to kind of do you know do quite a bit and I'm grateful for that um and I'm and I am you know grateful for Uh, being able to witness a lot of uh, what the police do and having some, you know, often the officers, it was surprising to me that police officers were sometimes quite honest about what they do. They were quite honest about um, the kind of, you know, things that we would categorize as corruption very loosely. They they would be quite open about that. They would be quite open about these informal policing practices. Um, They would be quite, you know, they would be quite forthcoming about talking about, you know, forthcoming and and honest in talking about violence and why they carry out violence. Um, And it may have been due to the fact that my fieldwork was taking place when there was a there's an operation being carried out in Karachi so the police were already under a lot of pressure they were in the public eye there was a lot of pressure on them to deliver there was a pressure on them to show their performance, right? Show the data, like, how are you operating? Are you cleaning up the city or not, right? Are you getting rid of these, you know, these, these, uh, these, all these miscreants, militants, everybody in the city, right? Um, are you getting rid of arms and armed actors from the city? So they were sort of in that, they were pushed into a corner where they had to show their performance. So they were, they were, they were becoming quite open to sort of the media. They were allowing journalists to sort of showcase their work. Um, and I think because I was... In, you're in the field at that time, um, they were a little bit more open to kind of talking about their performances as well and justifying what they do and why, right? So that may have been one of the factors. But so regardless, I mean, I was there from, I would say, bet- I did the most of the fieldwork happened between 2015 and 2018. Um, so I did about almost two years uh, collectively over different, different trips, but I did about two years of um, ethnographic fieldwork. Um, I was attached with different stations, with different police officers. Um, I was given access to different units so i could see how different units work um i was i was present for multiple press conferences press briefings other events uh, other kinds of you know public events and private events meetings etc um, but yeah that was that was basically like you know more or less on patrols in, you know on patrols on public deployments um, at different public events how they get deployed um how they you know sort of again use uh, very informal ways of meeting demands very quickly when they have to be deployed at public uh, events and at high profile situations um so yeah so there was a lot of uh, it was an Interesting. It was a it was a long period of fieldwork, uh, but it was it was it was really interesting, and it was good to get that kind of deep insight um, into the police. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. Your book provides a, provides a very deep insight into the inner workings of uh, the police institution, and you also address the ethical complexities or ethical entanglements of conducting research among the police.
1: Yeah. So, I, as, I mean, among the police, but I think generally, I think those ethical entanglements, I mean, I'm sure you as an uh, anthropologist know as well, right? When you're sort of researching on violence, um, it becomes very difficult to kind of, uh, you know, remain very objective or remain very neutral or not get very um, or, or just, you know, like just see things. Keep seeing things as an outsider, or keep think, seeing things as very black and white. Um, when you're working on either, when you're working on um, you know um, actors who are uh, affected by violence, or when you're working on actors who you know um, who had to perpetrate violence now whether that's a gang or whether that's a police force or a vigilante group or something um, when violence becomes so central to what a group is doing or what an institution is doing uh, it's something that you are you're going to see at one point or another right if you're doing ethnographic work on an institution that is legally authorized to use force and violence you will be witness to some of that right you will be witness to some of that and any kind of connected uh, aspects. You may be witness to, you may observe, um, you know, forms of, uh, you, you know, forms of of violence, whether that's, you know, from an arrest to a potential, like, you know, and in some cases, people have witnessed, you know, torture, etc. You may witness other forms of informal practices, like bribe, taking bribes or extorting people or threats, you know, threats are being made in front of uh, anthropologists and ethnographers all the time, if you're working in this kind of area. Um, so it becomes that kind of You do become entangled in that, right? You become sort of you become a witness to that, you become an observer to that. Um and it's very it becomes very difficult. And I think like Beatrice does talk about, and other anthropologists have talked about this idea of like um complicity, like our complicity as you know, researchers, because we're we're in the field, we're with, we're attached to these agents and to these agencies and to these bodies um, who are who are going to be using force or who are going to be threatening the use of force at one point or another. Um and what does what does our role? As observers, as witnesses of of these behaviors, what does that mean? Do we become complicit in that violence, or do we kind of you know take that as part of the of, of an ethnographer's role, right? Um, but I think yeah, I think I think that the, the the best thing one can do is sort of talk about one's position honestly, is talk about what one has seen very honestly and in transparent ways. Um, with some, with some critical perspective, but often like, you know, with, but, but also like find ways to contextualize it, find ways to contextualize it, find ways to explain it in very honest ways, not through, especially I feel like if you're working in a, in a, in a if you're doing a case study in the global south or in a part of the world, um, you know, use, maybe use lenses and perspectives that would be, you know that would connect with those cultures with those societies with the politics of that world right with the inequalities you see in that world because sometimes like people often take like you know traditionally we've taken very western ideas westernized ideas about violence westernized ideas about policing and try to implant them or or implement them in our perspectives and our analysis of policing in other parts of the world or violence in other parts of the world and I think that needs to change so I think that's something that I try and do in this book and I do get pushback on it and I have gotten pushback on it is that maybe Maybe I'm, you know, being too sort of soft on the police or I'm, I'm, you know, being sort of everything is very, you know, fluffy and, 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 Framed in certain ways. And I don't think that's the case. I think I'm fairly critical in the book. But I do think, like, once you're sort of entangled up in that world um, and you're able to sort of understand, you know, those cultural norms and how certain things are done and the histories, history behind the violence and the institutional legacies behind that violence, um, then things become a little bit more, less black and white. You know, they become, it's not just about right and wrong, it's about sort of explaining some of those. um, And it's about understanding your own ethical dilemmas as well. And it's about, you know, uh, explaining your own ethical dilemmas and complexities and complicities as well. So I try and do a little bit of that, but there's always room for more. And I'm always fascinated by the work that anthropologists do on the police and security companies and things like that, because they are often, they grapple with this, right? They grapple with this complicity, they grapple with these emotions that they feel in the field. And I feel like it's it's a great area of research itself that has to be written about further.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Zoha, for the very comprehensive answer and thank you for the interview. Uh, It was a great pleasure to have you here today and um, I'm looking forward to reading about your new work. Thank
1: you so much, Denise. I look forward to reading your new work as well. I'm a big fan of your book, so it's been great speaking with you and um, I hope we can stay in touch. And thank you so much for having me here.